With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Amazon. Detective Harry Bosch is back on the new season of Amazon's original series, Bosch, based on the best-selling novels by Michael Connolly. Stream the new season now on Amazon Prime Video. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 17th, 2016, the Rough Them Up edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is across the table for me. Hello, John Dickerson. Good morning, David. But Emily Bazelon chose a great week to take a vacation, so she's not with us. But instead, we have somebody even better. Ruth Marcus, columnist for The Washington Post. Uh, not, not better, but former Supreme Court reporter. There you go. That's better. That's better. Emily never was like a Supreme Court reporter. You're, you're going to just totally put her to shame. <laughs> I'm not going to put Emily to shame. Hello, Emily. I love you. Uh, making a GabFest debut, I think. Yes, Ruth? GabFest debut. Very excited. Thank you. I hope you're not us. roughing me up. Uh, if we, if it, if that's what it takes, if you pick up a tomato, we're gonna, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have John, John knock you out. On this week's GabFest, we will apply complex algorithms and higher order math to the question of whether Donald Trump will win the nomination. Then President Obama makes the most boring possible Supreme Court nomination. Uh, we will talk about it. Will it outfox the Republicans? Ruth is going to disagree with it. The claim that it's boring. I can tell. I can hear her sighingly disagree with that. Then what does the violence and the talk of violence at Trump rallies portend? Does it mean anything terrible about the uh, future of the republic? We will also have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we'll talk about our favorite kind, our favorite political journalism. Is that what we're doing? Yes. That's what I was told. Yes, that's what I thought about it because I have, I think of you, Ruth, as being. I always associate you with Marjorie, and I was thinking I was thinking about Marjorie, and that made me think about political and journalism. You're talking about our friend Marjorie Williams, yes. who's gone for ten years now, and if only Marjorie Williams were here to write about Donald Trump, the world would be a better place. It would be amazing. Yes, that is true. We will talk about that in Slate Plus. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com/gabfestplus. And hey. Don't forget, we have a political GabFest live in Atlanta. Tickets are selling briskly, but they could be selling more briskly. You could be bringing more people to that show. You could be buying your ticket. It's going to be April 27th. That's a Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. at the First Center for the Arts. And it's going to be a great show. It's like this is the best political season ever. Uh, We've never done a show in the South before, and uh, we want to see you there. So visit slate.com slash live for more information on the show and other Slate Live shows and to get tickets. The 
path analysis of Donald Trump's course to the Republican nomination is crazily complex. The wizards at 538 don't seem to understand it. John Dickerson does not seem to understand it. Wait, what What don't we understand? You don't understand. Give me a chance it. to demonstrate no, that you don't I don't understand, understand it, it before. What, what we'll, see. Understand we'll see. About we'll see. We'll see. Well, you'll get your chance, Dickerson. John Kasich, uh, my favorite detail. This is John Kasich is like living a whistle stop. He brought in two people with experience from the 1976 contested co- yes. convention yeah. to give offer him advice. Yeah. So, John, but I'll give you your chance. When you look at the numbers, what are the paths by which Trump gets to 1,237? He needs to win the nomination on the first ballot, and what are the paths by which he doesn't? And then we'll start to we'll start to travel down branches. All right. So there are a couple of different ways you can look at the path that he needs to get to his 1,237. He has won before. Uh, this Tuesday, he'd won 44% of the delegates. He needs to win between 52% and 54%, depending on how you allocate the delegates at the moment, of the remaining delegates. That seems, on the one hand, like a lot. He was only at 44. Now he has to get 52. But after the 15th, the way you uh, allocate delegates changed. So we saw Ohio and Florida had winner-take-all delegate allocation. So when you're winning a state that has winner-take-all delegate allegation, your percentage of delegates can increase. Also, for later states in the process that have what they consider proportional allocation are proportional plus, sort of, which is to say it's proportional by, say, congressional district, but then you get a bonus if you win. So you get kind of more in the proportional than in the proportional you had before the 15th of March. For Trump to get to that 52 or 54 is more likely than it was uh, before. I would say another thing, which is on the 15th, he got 60% of the available delegates. So if all he has to do is get 54, then he just has to, to repeat his performance on the 15th, and he'll he'll do fine. The, the third thing that happened is that Trump got 48% of the vote in Florida and in the other states, with the exception of Ohio, which is a special case because of Kasich, his ceiling increased. So the idea that there was a ceiling that Trump would hit and that a smaller field of anti-Trump candidates would then get a greater share of the anti-Trump vote uh, it was seriously called into question by his uh, victory in Florida, which also was in a closed primary. There was a feeling for a while that Trump did worse in closed primaries where only Republicans could vote than he did in open where anybody could vote. So it suggests he has the capacity to do better in future states. So all of those things explain both that because he lost Ohio, he has to do a little bit better than he has been doing, but he has the capacity to do better uh, so that's kind of where things stand. Finally, the only other final point is in those states where it's proportional or quasi-proportional, like New York and Pennsylvania, Kasich and Cruz have to f- sort themselves out. If they continue to both compete, then they split the anti-Trump vote. And the only way to stop him is to beat him in winner-take-all states like uh, the Dakotas and Montana and Nebraska, where he might be weaker. And then where he's going to win in the proportional states, come close enough in second to scrape off a few delegates and keep him from that 1237. You can't scrape off the delegates if... Cruz and Kasich are splitting the anti-Trump vote. So, Ruth, uh, no one actually knows what these scenarios will be like, so you're you're free to say whatever the hell you want. But imagine we get to Cleveland with Trump at 1,200 delegates. What are what are possible scenarios? Uh, riots. <laughs> I think the Trump, the first that's the first answer. Um, I, there are so many possible scenarios, and kudos to Professor Dickerson for walking us through. And I want to know, John, this is on the desk because <laughs> that was that was crazy good. Assuming we get to Cleveland and assuming he has less than 1237, which I think is not necessarily probable given all basically the history that John recited is the history of don't underestimate Trump. 
is a short version of all of that. We have consistently, I have consistently underestimated Trump, and I'm trying to learn from past errors. But so we get to Cleveland, and we don't have it, and there are different scenarios. One is what I would think of as the rules are rules scenario, right? And that's, you need to have 1237. If you don't have 1237, then anything goes, because after the first ballot, most of the dele- most of the delegates, and we'll be having a lot of run-up to that about how important it is to make sure that your delegates are really your delegates, and who is it that picks these delegates at state conventions, and does Trump have the organization that's necessary to make sure his delegates are really going to be loyal to him? But we get to second and beyond ballots, and then the Trump argument becomes, look, 1237 is the rule, but we're in a democracy here, by the way. Political parties are not democracies, but he will argue we're in something resembling a democracy here, and so I'm close enough, and so I I have the kind of moral democratic force to have this. The counterargument is going to be, look, rules are rules, and you didn't get there. And so then we're going to have kind of two split arguments. One is, so Ted Cruz will say, I'm the guy who's number two, coalesce around me. Um, Kasich will argue, but I'm the guy who's electable. Look at the polls. I have these delegates. Look at me. And then there will be the kind of outsider, bring us Paul Ryan argument that doesn't really matter if you have delegates on your side. What matters is being able to bring together uh, enough delegates to get the nomination under the rules of the party. So I think the short version of my answer is, who the heck knows? We haven't, we barely were here in 1976. John, talk a little bit about delegates. Are they, there's so much confusion. Yeah. I think for, a lot, for people like me until about a week ago, I thought they were insect like drones. They were brain dead. They, but it turns out if you prick them, they do bleed. They have feelings and beliefs <laughs> right. of their own. Well, and delegates are allocated along a continuum. In some states, they are allocated specifically to the candidate and they represent and uh, support the candidate. They're on a slate for, say, Donald Trump. They are people who are diehard Trump supporters. That, that would be true, I believe it's true, of New Hampshire, for example. So then in Virginia, though, you have the same people who kind of run for delegate all the time. And they're party regulars. They're folks that just love the Republican Party, and they love to go to the convention. And they go to the convention because they do lots of other fun things. And they get to wear silly hats. And they, Don't leave that out. Including wearing silly hats. But in the convention, they are bound to a candidate. And even though that's not the candidate they support, they go as a kind of vessel for the views of the of the Republicans in their state. And they cast their uh, vote on the first ballot for the candidate to whom they are bound. And then that candidate gets nominated because it's all preordained and they and they move along. Well, in this situation... When it is not preordained, those people, let's say from Virginia who go and are bound to Donald Trump, are bound to him on the first ballot. But on the second ballot, their heart of hearts, they are a Cruz person or a Rubio person or something else. They can then vote by their heart. They were they were selected as a delegate because of their affection for the party, not for a particular candidate. So and then you've got a, another wrinkle, which is that on rules votes, delegates are not bound to candidates or to the viewpoint of a particular candidate. So what we saw in 76 and what we saw in 52 and then what we saw with the Democrats in 1980 is whoever's behind tries to force a rule vote that becomes a proxy for how all the delegates would vote once they become unbound. And so you have the rules vote because you also have this class of delegates who are uncommitted. And that number's around 300. And what happens is the the fight for if, if Trump doesn't get to 12... 
37, the fight for those uncommitted delegates and the the emoluments slathered over them and the gifts given to them uh, will be fantastic. In 1976, Ford was calling, he called one woman while she was getting her hair set at the beauty parlor to convince her why she should vote for him. He had Clark Reed, who was the chairman of the Mississippi Republican Party, to the White House for a state dinner for the queen. There was lots of like sucking up to these people. And that would go, you know, you can imagine Donald Trump giving them fabulous prizes to win over those uncommitted. Trump stakes for all. Trump stakes. <laughs> Exactly. And uh, yes, the stakes are high. Um, but the point of getting back to the, the rules, the proxy vote in rules, what happens there is that it's also it's both a vote to see where the delegates hearts really are. But it's also a way to kind of show those uncommitted delegates, hey, this is where everybody thinks the party should go. So you should get in behind that sentiment. It's going to be uh, it's going to be quite interesting if we get there. And, and yes. And even before we get to the delegates and the delegates voting, we're going to have to have like the advanced seminar on the rules committee and in particular rule 40 which was put in um, ironically as a way to make certain to protect front runner Mitt Romney back when which requires that the nominee have won a majority in at least eight states majority of the delegates majority of the delegates in at least eight states who has achieved that goal right well, now Donald J Trump who has not achieved that goal yet one Ted Cruz, who may never achieve that goal, one John Kasich. So wither Rule 40 is another conversation. It is ch- a changeable rule. It's changeable by the Rules Committee. Right, which is why the first proxy vote in the Rules Committee may be on 40B. I have a question. I have a question <laughs> uh, for either instructor here. So um, Marco Rubio won some delegates. Ben Carson, I think, won some delegates. I'm not sure if... Jed, Jed Bush probably won some delegates. Three? If they've suspended their campaigns or, or d- dropped out of the race, are those delegates still bound to the candidate that they were attached to and then? So are Jeb Bush's delegates up for grabs or are they not up for grabs? Depending on the rules of the state, I believe that they are bound mostly for that first, um, for that first but it varies from state even to state. Even if that person, even if their candidate is no longer a candidate. Right. I, but I believe it, it varies state by state, whether you're bound, yeah. whether you're still bound after they leave, A, then when you are uh, bound or how many rounds are you bound for. And so you'd have to check state by state. Uh, Ruth, let's go back to, to some of the politics of the moment. Are, do you think that the never Trump forces, the, the people who are trying to spend huge amounts of money to weaken Trump, do they feel emboldened or weakened after what happened this week? I, I think they feel um, weakened after what happened this week. I mean, John Kasich won his own state. Donald Trump did very well every place else. Marco Rubio was demolished. Trump marches on. Um, you have if you are if your goal in life, as is the goal of many in the Republican establishment right now is to stop Trump. Uh, I think the word for you right now is chastened. And and John, what and do you scared. Th- and what do you think their next move is, those folks? Well, the next move is to try and deny Trump those delegates to get to 1237. And one of the we have two narrative battles going on here. One is the narrative battle to shape what's fair and what's not fair getting to the convention. So 
Rule 40B, which was uh, adopted before the last convention, is not, it's a temporary rule. So it, it, the expectation based on history is that it would be rewritten for the new convention. However, a lot of Trump forces are trying to argue that a contested convention itself is somehow out of bounds, that this is not in keeping with either the Republican Party or conservatism. But we should note that the greatest advocate for contested conventions in the history of the modern presidency is Ronald Reagan, who tried to contest Nixon in 68 and then who tried to contest Ford in 76. So just for a party that reveres Reagan, you could do no more Reagan-esque thing than to contest. Donald Trump. But third, there's a second narrative, though, which is they're going to, once they get to Cleveland, there will be who shapes and has control over what's happening in the moment. And the rules committee fights and the floor fights and all of that um, is going to be fought out on social media and Fox News. And whoever can control that narrative controls whether the loser is run out of their um, vote right. I was going to say birthright, but, you know, and that's going to be really important because if you feel like you've been robbed, then you run away and leave the party. You know, I'm having this really interesting flashback. I don't know if anybody else is to Florida in the recount, right? It was a very similar situation where it was Florida in the 2000 Bush v. Gore recount. And it was simultaneously, as would be the situation with a contested convention where on the one level, it was an argument, a very technical argument among lawyers about the meaning in Florida of election rules and here the meaning of convention rules. And then it was a fight for um, narratives of fairness and equity and what democracy. And we, we I'm so, was sort of flashing back to that riotous situation uh, in, I think it was Miami right. in, in the Isn't the difference? Are, don't political parties really have no actual existence in America. I mean, the fight in Florida was a real fight over democracy. The Republican Party is is basically a private organization that sets up, that has elections where it's choosing delegates. But it, it's kind of, it's its own, it's like it can make its own rules. It can pick, can pick Daffy Duck as its nominee. It's not a, it doesn't yeah. represent the public. It represents the interests of this basically private organization. Right. But the problem is you don't want to lose all the members of your private organization by adopting rules that they think are totally unfair through this process. Right. So one last question on this, Ruth. There's So what we've seen in the primary process is that the Republican establishment doesn't exist, at least for the purpose of creating votes in the primary when we get to a convention, is there a Republican establishment that can exercise control over convention, do you think? Or is it will it be just as decentralized and chaotic at a convention as it has been in the primary process? I think that the, the sort of quickest answer is we don't know because we haven't been there. This is if this if we get to this situation, it's going to make 1976 look like a stately minuet of democracy and and rule boundedness. My instinct, though, is that the establishment has more control in the context of the convention than it does in the context of the primaries, kind of for the reason that you said, that the that a party is a private organization. It's a creature of its rules, and it's a creature of its creators. And so uh, maybe that is the moment where the establishment gets together in an attempt to repel this intruder in the form of Donald Trump. Uh, we'll see. There certainly are democratic aspects even to this private club. Small d democratic. Now let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is stamps.com. It feels like most of our time these days is spent waiting, waiting for primary results, waiting for a paycheck, waiting to be seen by the doctor. 
One place you can skip the wait now is at the post office, thanks to Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk. They make it easy. Just use your own computer and printer to get the right postage for any letter or package. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You can even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. There's growing alarm over violence and the threat of violence at Donald Trump's rallies. Also, rallies? Why isn't it such a, that's such a 1930s word. Is that the only word we have for when you have a political gathering? I guess they're rallies. What, what word would know. you prefer? Do you, why does I, that I feel ill, ill-fitting? As I, was, I was using that word, I was thinking, is that? Events. Events. Donald Trump's events. Why? But why is rally ill-fitting? Because rally has this kind of 30s fascism overtones oh. that you know, but only it, in the Trump context. If you were to say a Rubio rally, you wouldn't. I know feel that's like why I don't know. That. I don't know why I stumbled over it. I no, but it's a, it's a really interesting question because Donald Trump was asking people who were attending his rallies to pledge their support to him, and you know the the question of whether they would raise their hands to do it became fraught with the the, the notions that you're suggesting. But it made me think. You know, if you go to events in Iowa and New Hampshire, for example, it's not necessarily people who are died in the wool supporters of the candidate. They're folks who are shopping around and they want to hear from them. They don't think of it as a rally. With Trump, the event is almost always a rally. Right. Trump, does Trump do any of the, I'm going to go to a firehouse and have chili at the firehouse? No, did he no. Do, there, there did is he do no chili in Trump. I think he did one of those um, uh, kind of stop by off the record uh, things, but I don't, I think it might have been one or two at the most. So basically Iowa. all of his events have been yeah. masked. Well, you know, but that's both A, what he prefers, and B, it's what happened with Obama too. There was a period where Obama couldn't do a stop at somewhere because it turned into a huge you know, right. a massive nightmare. Right. So, right. He so, you, so he shouldn't. We shouldn't hold him necessarily responsible for that. Whether you hold him responsible or not is up to you. But yeah. there are mitigating factors in addition to the fact that he would prefer to just have big rallies. There's also the fact that it's uh, it's harder for him to do a stop by at a diner than it is for a normal candidate. Right. I think you could say rally guilt free. Okay. He'll find something else to feel guilty rally, about. Rally guilt free. So, in any case, back to back to the set up here. A Chicago event was canceled this week after the threat of chaotic protest. Uh, Trump supporters have spat on peaceful protesters at the rallies. In one case, sucker punched a peaceful protester who was being taken out of a rally, have been egged on by Trump himself. Trump's campaign manager has been very credibly accused of assaulting a reporter. John is shaking his hand at the very credibly, so we'll note John's skepticism there. Other reporters have written about the fear they have felt at Trump rallies. And it's also worth noting that, that much of the kind of violence or the, the, the felt threat of violence is on behalf of minority protesters. Ruth, I confess, I've made Trump-Hitler comparisons and Trump-Mussolini comparisons. And we're, we're obviously not there yet. If you look at pre-war Italy and Germany or pre, pre-fascism Italy and Germany, the level of political violence is extraordinary. There's murder. We're not there at all. And yet it does feel like there is something quite different about what's going on at Trump events than at any political corresponding political events that I can remember. Is it different or am I am I just being a ninny? Oh, well, it's different in 
one very major sense is that you could imagine um, violence breaking out at other rallies, though the amount of protest and violence and ensuing altercations at Trump rallies is greater. What you can't imagine and what was stunning to me watching Trump this week is the degree to which he is inciting this rather than seeking to tamp it down. Okay, let's hear a little bit of Trump in his own words. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. Okay, just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. I promise. And this guy started screaming by himself. And I don't know, rough up? He should have been, maybe he should have been roughed up. Because it was absolutely disgusting what he was doing. You know what I hate? There's a guy totally disruptive, throwing punches. We're not allowed to punch back anymore. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. He still had an opportunity in this past week to rise above, to act, if you don't mind my saying so, presidential. And instead, there he was talking about when you watch this 78-year-old man punching this protester in the face, instead of saying, we can't tolerate that kind of behavior in America, you have Donald Trump saying, oh, I might pay his legal fees. And oh, the guy was raising that nasty finger. Um, So he was provoked. And he seems to sort of have a lot of solicitude for his own free speech rights and hurt when they're infringed and not a lot of belief in the free speech right of others. I want to say one quick thing as I said that, which is to say, I do think they are his rallies and he has a right and a need and his voters have and supporters have a legitimate interest in having him heard. And so for him to shut down protesters and have them taken out of his rallies, I think that's okay. And the president made this point this week uh, in his the comments that he made on it. But it's the inciting violence and the failing to denounce it where he's really fallen dangerously short. John, I don't see this as a strategy of Trump's. I don't feel like Trump like set out to say, I'm going to incite violence and I'm going to increase this. I, I, it doesn't feel to me like this is a thing in the way that, that dictators traditionally do, that they actually use this as a tool. This just feels to me like kind of an id-like response that Trump is demonstrating. Is that right. how you... I, uh, so I was just looking it. back at something that I wrote back in January because the Trump rallies didn't have this protester ejection. Now it's kind of a constant theme of the of the rallies. And that picked up towards the end of last year, the beginning of this year. But what struck me at one of the rallies where this became, where there were several episodes of this back in January was that the entire rally, separate and apart from the ejection of the protesters part, has a kind of ejection mentality, which is get rid of the the immigrants, get rid of the Chinese, get rid of the bad trade deals, get rid of the, the capitulating establishment Republicans. There is a kind of vibe of tissue rejection uh, in the rallies themselves. And so when a person invades that and behaves in a way that Donald Trump and the crowd don't want, it is not it doesn't right. feel shocking that the reaction right. would be eject this. Thing. Yeah. And then and then can I can I just interrupt you on that? And sure. You get your saying. Look, to me, I think one of the, the most useful lenses for understanding Trump continues to be germ phobia. 
that there is that your use of the tissue there like there's a sense of this is a body expelling something that is alien to it i mean if he use it it pervades his language and that use of the word disgusting that sense of the thing itself is wrong and doesn't belong there and is and is poisonous or toxic and that is all of a piece to me yeah it's one thing to be interrupted by a protester, and that's lame. And, you know, somebody heckled Marco Rubio in his concession speech, right? Like, who, who heckles a concession speech? Anyway, you can object to that. But on the string of objections in human behavior in life, a protester is an annoyance. There may be nefarious people behind it, but it isn't that big a deal. Now, a guy rushing the stage is a big deal. Like, that guy should have been, that guy's the one you hit, right? You're not allowed to do it. Sorry, that's your, you know, that's what you signed up for. What happened to the guy who was sucker punched was he was walking out calmly, not doing anything, and he got sucker punched. So that's the worst, and that's but the, and that's what Trump from the stage has been calling on the his audience to do. I think that's of a of an order totally different than the pledge, which was he was kidding, he was joking, he's done this before. It's like the the image was obviously arresting, but if you listen to him. It's, of a, it's very different than the way he talks about protesters or about the press. I mean, when he talks about the dishonest press and the whole room yells and, and you know, people of uh, non-white members of the press have been yelled at and had things like go back to Iraq, go back to ISIS, that coming out of the crowd, go back to Auschwitz, that, that's of an order that's different, actually, I think, than the pledge thing, which was uh, in sort it was much more in jest. But anyway, it's not surprising that, 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 that this tumult comes out of these rallies, even though you all, we also have to accept, by the way, also that there is now a, an orchestrated anti-Trump protest movement, which bears some responsibility for agitation. He kind of misses the protesters when they're not there. There was a rally the other day where he said, aren't there any protesters? Because it's part of the I mean, reality show narrative and it's part of the energy feeding the roar of the crowd to have this actual other to expel. Well, you, I mean, if you think about Donald Trump's career, his three primary public activities are the Miss Universe pageant or Miss USA pageant, which is about expelling losers. The Apprentice, which is the Apprentice, which is about expelling people, and then these political rallies, which is about. It's, I think you're right that this is a thing that he that he he loves that process himself. Do you, do, John, going to your counter protester point, like so? So one of the things that's sort of concerning is that his very, the very um, aggression with which he is expelling people is causing a counter-protest movement that is then becoming more aggressive, which then justifies, serves to justify what he's doing. Should we be worried that this cycle is, is heating up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't see how that cycle doesn't heat up because now what you have is video clips of people yelling things like, go back to Auschwitz, and you have... Go back to Auschwitz? People yell that? Yeah. Now, you know, so what you have is you is you have the what's happened now is that the worst thing yelled by a single person out of 25,000 people at a rally defines the whole rally. And now if I'm a person watching this and I see that, I'm agitated and I think I'm going to go tell those people what for. And you're going to go and tell not the person who yelled that or who is their equivalent at the next rally, but you might yell it at some person who's just kind of curious about Trump, is is not really into politics, but kind of likes the way he tells it like it is. The confrontation is asymmetrical. And so if that <clears throat> mismatch happens, it's going to create just chaos. And it I don't see how it doesn't get worse. 
I, I think we should all be very, very scared. I thought that the scene last weekend where the protester rushed the stage was just, you, you can imagine that ending it way less well than it ended. And I was talking to somebody this week about Trump had planned at one point to visit Israel and the Mideast. And one of the reasons that that trip never came off was that his security could not be assured in that region for the obvious reasons of the things that he said about um, Muslims. Well, I mean, he needs to play a role in helping tone this down. He doesn't seem to want to play that role. And therefore, the trend line is a scary trend line to me. Why has no one ever done this before? In American politics, why has there not been someone who has encouraged this kind of violence? Because, I mean, I think that we have the assumption, the operating assumption of American politics has been that acting presidential is part of getting to be president. And Trump is just turning that completely on his head. I mean, look at the video that he put out. I guess it was Instagram, right, of Hillary Clinton and taking on Hillary Clinton as being the one who is embarrassing America and not being presidential with purporting to show Putin laughing at her and as she was doing her, I'm tempted to do it, but I won't, yap, yap, yap thing like the dog. He just, um, there's just no place that he won't go. Were, were, John, were Wallace's campaign, in, in 68 was Wallace like yeah. this? The Wallace comparison is interesting in a lot of different ways. There were lots of confrontations at Wallace <clears throat> rallies, but then you had a broader cultural and you still have this now though between i mean where did we first see protests in this campaign we saw them at democratic rallies for bernie sanders with the black lives matters uh protesters interrupting his rallies and then at, at hillary clinton's and then even some with martin o'malley what i was about the, the argument i was about to make about wallace was you had big campus protests going on all across the country not just at his rallies and his the response there and the confrontation there was much more, it was the same sort of rejection of these people who were tearing America down and who were responsible for ruining the old values. And then obviously there was a race component with, uh, right. with Wallace. I bet there were not a lot of black people who went to Wallace rallies. Not that I can, not that I can conjure. But, you know, you saw, for example, I mean, one of the big things Reagan both had to deal with as governor and helped him rise in conservative circles were his big confrontations with college uh, campuses in terms of stopping riots and in using force to stop riots. I mean, if you go back and look at it, it would you would think, oh, that's just like Donald Trump. And it was sunny Ronald Reagan. How, uh, last question on this, Ruth, how should the media cover what's going on with the Trump rallies? I'm torn about this because right at the start, a lot of us tried not writing about Trump and sort of thought ignoring him would be a good strategy. That turned out not to work. When you have this violence and threats of violence, uh, ignoring it is not a good idea, but neither is rewarding it excessively. So I think what we really need to concentrate on is not the crowd as much as the candidate and the candidate's response because he is the one who's running for president, and he is the one who's responsible for his actions and for inciting the actions of others. So I would say, if I were the editor of these stories, let's make Trump the lead unless something really outrageous happens, because otherwise you're just in kind of lowest common denominator politics, and that's just going to breed worse. 
This is, just reminds me, I saw a great tweet that someone was pointing at going back to the contested convention, like saying, why, I don't know why Trump is so worried about the contested convention after all this whole thing. I'm a great negotiator. It's this whole thing. He ought, to, he ought to be like, oh, I'm going to win it in negotiation. That's f- a very good point. <laughs> okay. Now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is Amazon's original series, Bosch, which is returning for an all new season. The series is based on Michael Connelly's best-selling novels. Harry Bosch, the tenacious LAPD homicide detective, is back on the job after an involuntary leave of absence. His first case back may prove his biggest challenge yet as he follows a dangerous trail of corruption and collusion, one that uncovers the dark side of the police department and threatens Bosch's relentless pursuit of truth. Stream the new season of Bosch now on Amazon Prime Video and listen to the companion podcast, A Fine Mist of Blood, on SoundCloud or Stitcher. On Wednesday morning, President Obama named Merrick Garland, a judge on the D.C. Circuit, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, right, as his nominee to replace Justice Antonin Scalia. It's a pretty um, boring choice on paper. Garland is a late middle-aged white guy, moderate, highly respected, modest, humble, admired by all. The response from Republicans is kind of what you would expect so far. They have vowed not to give him a hearing, much less a vote. Dahlia, I am not sure. I should note, I don't think I introduced you. Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's chief uh, legal correspondent and, and also needs no introduction. Supreme Court correspondent for many years. And, and basically, yeah, you, I didn't introduce you, Dahlia, because you need no introduction. Let's start with Garland. What are, what are the reasons why Obama would nominate him uh, to, to fill this important seat? A couple of things, David. I think, one, he's trying to change the conversation from politics to the court. And I think he's trying to say, if we're going to talk about the court, let's put what everybody can agree is a judge's judge on the court, somebody with 19 years of cases to pour over with a clear record, right? This is not Elena Kagan, who nobody knew anything about. This is somebody who you want to, someone who shows his work, this guy shows his work. And so I think it's at least some effort to say, this is by merit. This person merits the job. I'm not going to pick someone who's going to be inflammatory. I'm picking somebody who only a few days earlier, Orrin Hatch had said, you know, if Obama was reasonable, he'd pick someone like Merrick Garland. So I think it's really an attempt to, you know, box in the GOP, certainly, and to say, I'm giving you somebody who you call reasonable. Uh, let's have a conversation. But also, I think in a deeper way, it's it's an attempt to say, can we please talk about the judicial branch in a manner that is not sharp elbows and screaming and holding our breath and tantrums, but that is about merit and is about care and is about judicial work. Ruth, I mean, Dahlia's starting to outline the game theory. I, I confess I'm a little bit puzzled about the game theory. It seems to me that Garland is such a, a he is a virtuous and and well-liked, and I, I know that you know him, uh, nominee, but it's a boring choice. He's There's no, this is not nominating someone who, who the world is going to get exercised about and who Democrats are going to be furious about when it's rejected. He's just like a guy. He's like a really good judge, but he's not somebody who's who's likely to provoke lots of emotion. So I don't see how... Obama wins an emotion war about this, unless he doesn't want one. Well, the the emotion war is going to have to be, to the extent that you get one, 
about the Senate's failure to do its constitutionally prescribed job. And I understand that the Constitution doesn't give a deadline for by which the Senate should advise or consent or require it to advise or consent, but it certainly does imagine that the Senate's going to weigh in at some point. This is a not-playing-games pick. We're not playing games by picking somebody from Chuck Grassley's home state. We're not playing games by picking somebody who was unanimously confirmed just a few weeks ago. We're not playing games by picking somebody who can energize this demographic or that demographic. We are playing the game, um, which it shouldn't be, of picking the guy who happens to be unbelievably probably the most well-qualified for the job who has, as Dahlia said, for the first time we used to talk about stealth nominees. This guy is the ultimate not stealth nominee. He's got 19 years of appellate court opinions and the slimmest of pickings for conservatives to attack him on the merits. And so I just think it's a great call on the Senate to do its job and um, call their bluff move on Republicans. The uh, Not just does he have opinions, but he has Republicans who have looked at those opinions and say, boy, he would be the consensus pick in previous contexts where Orrin Hatch said he would, if you really wanted to pick somebody that wasn't going to cause trouble, this was back, I guess, the last time we went through this. Right. Um, this was the Sotomayor Kagan. Uh, Kagan. Kagan. Anyway, so he's got even even better than just a record you can look at. He's got one that has sort of pre-approval by at least some uh, legal lights in the re- in the Republican Senate cloakroom. The other thing is that if, if if the president had picked an obvious political pick, which was to say somebody who looked a certain way or had a certain record that would be something that the Democratic base could rally around, he would be engaging in what is now a totally political fight, which is to say, you know, Republicans are looking back at past statements from Joe Biden or looking at Obama's vote to filibuster Alito and saying, you've been political in the past, so don't say we're being political. So he seems to have gone counter to that, which is to say, to try to make a political argument based on being non-political or based on standards. I I don't know. I mean, well, Dahlia, get get into this. I mean, it seems to me that the Senate... The Senate is not going to have any problem engaging in nine months of inaction here. They'll be very happy to be. They don't have to do anything. There's nothing that requires them to do anything, right? They don't have to act at all. They just don't have to schedule hearings. No, no. This is not a constitutional problem. (laughs) This is a political problem, you know, because they absolutely can run out the clock. They've said that's what they're going to do. But I do think, uh, just tagging on to what John just said, I think that they are in the very unenviable position of not just opposing somebody that they all agreed, some of them in writing, some of them, you know, in statements, was a moderate, confirmable guy. But now they're in the really unenviable position of having to say things like what we're hearing Orrin Hatch say, which is, this is too nice a guy to beat up during this toxic political you know moment and it's such a strange statement it, it hurts it hurts him more than it hurts Merrick Garland to be against him exactly it's it, it I mean to, to be forced to say well that's a nice nominee you got there Mr. President be a shame if something happens to him <laughs> really really that's what you're gonna say and I, and I think in that sense Aren't they saying it's a it's a you know that there's a print that they don't even have to deal with the merits of Garland they've just so that they're just fighting on a different front they're like it's a principle the principle is like Let during the, the last decide. the last you know three and a half years of a presidency we don't nominate a Supreme Court justice and that's our principle. And so we don't we shouldn't take, you know, we shouldn't take this into account. And they don't have to even talk about Garland. Like they're not going to talk about Garland. They're not going to meet with Garland. They're not going to do anything with Garland. It's just going to just going to 
sit there quietly. It's not going to sit there quietly because the the next move is to turn for the Democrats to turn up and the White House to turn up the pressure on incumbent Republican senators who are up for re-election, some of them in difficult races, to say, you know, okay, let the people decide is the Republican mantra, do your job is the Democratic mantra. And so to the extent that there is pressure in home states, say this is a nominee everybody agrees is supremely, pardon the pun, qualified, who would um, be a a consensus choice, as Orrin Hatch himself has said, um, why not, you know, why not give him a meeting? Why not give him a hearing? And this is like a football game. I'm really bad at sports analogies, but we are moving the ball down the field here to the extent that it moves by inches and inches and inches and inches and getting it closer to the goal line. So first he needs a meeting and then he needs a hearing and then he needs a committee vote and et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of one theory of the case. The other theory of the case, which I've been thinking about a lot, has to do with the lame duck. You're a Republican senator. You kind of know where things are headed. If it's Donald Trump nomination or a Ted Cruz nomination, are you going to get a better nominee from President Clinton than you're getting from President Obama in the form of Merrick Garland? I think not. Are you going to be in control of the Senate? So what happens in a lame duck? And I was on the Hill yesterday talking to some folks who are raising the question of whether the president, if after the election, if the nomination is not acted upon, would withdraw it so that President Clinton, if she's elected, um, would have the opportunity to make her own choice. And so uh, you can see this developing in a lot of different ways. The notion that Merrick Garland is simply a sacrificial lamb, I think, is not totally accurate. You, so you could be in a situation where if, let's say, Hillary Clinton is elected, you would have Republicans demanding on f- whatever right. grounds that Garland had to stay as the pick. Right. That, he, that, right. that this person who they thought was an illegitimate, oh, yeah. yeah, that that's, would be. Uh, don't you think that's going to happen? Yeah. Dahlia, Dahlia. It's going to be really funny when they say, boy, we didn't want to beat him up, but now we love him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets, you know, the layers of crazy go so deep. Uh, and I think that one other thing just worth flagging is that, you know, a lot of people are really disappointed that Obama didn't pick, you know, the liberal Scalia. I had myself said, you know, pick Elizabeth. Warren, pick Deval Patrick, let this be a symbol, you know, make it make it a big, big, big play and, you know, rally the base. But I think to, to say that is to forget what Barack Obama himself has said over and over again when he's asked about his ideal jurist. He doesn't say Brennan and Marshall. He is at pains to say not Brennan and Marshall. He is at pains to say Change comes not from the courts, but from the electorate. Elections matter. You know, legislators matter. I don't think the court should be effectuating huge change. And he picked someone who is in exactly the model of what he says is his ideal jurist, which is a consensus building, processy guy who, you know, is an incrementalist, very deferential to government agencies, very deferential to stare decisis. So I think, you know, while this seems like kind of a meh pick that is strategically, you know, maybe impressive but not getting anyone excited. I think in some sense, this is Obama picking someone who sounds a lot like Obama, you know, just a consensus builder and somebody who still believes in the possibility of compromise. Are you, Ruth and Dahlia, in any way disappointed that that the model for Supreme Court justice still is Ivy League, uh, uh, you know, done some, done some appellate work 
and is an appellate appeals court judge. And that that that's the only those are the only people who seem to even have been considered. There are no I mean, you, you've just mentioned this, Dahlia, that you think this is Obama's idea. But the narrowness of the field of people who are being considered for Supreme Court positions now is, to me, as a citizen, uh, sort of alarming. No, it's terrible, David. It's Harvard, Yale, Yale, Harvard, Harvard, Yale, D.C. Circuit, D.C. Circuit, clerk to the court, clerk to the court. You know, they all, it, it, we, we, in one sense, have the most racially and gender diverse court we've ever had, and they all come from New York. Uh, and, you know, it's a huge, huge problem. And Obama at one point had said, you know, what I'd really like to do is put a politician on the court just to, you know, see what happens, shake things up a little bit. But I think the nature of, and Ruth can correct me if she disagrees, but I think the nature of the confirmation process has made it absolutely impossible to ever put up anybody who has, you know, done or said anything political or who has had an interesting job or, God forbid, you know, been a public defender, as we saw with Jane Kelly on the Eighth Circuit. You know, nobody who's ever, ever tried a death penalty case uh, and, 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 you know, represented uh, a defendant in one of those cases is confirmable in this era. And so I think you're just going to get an awful lot of people who come up through the executive branch, who come up through the Justice Department and clerk at the court and then sit on a bench for a couple of years. I think that that is the only pipeline and it gets narrower with every pick. Sure. And Dahlia brought up the example of Jane Kelly. We This um, vacancy witnessed the remarkable spectacle uh, last weekend of television advertising against Jane Kelly, who's an Eighth Circuit judge who was on Obama's shorter list, though perhaps not the shortest list, in advance of her nomination at a time when she probably was already off the list, attacking her for her work as a federal public defender, doing her job representing a woman who was a child, a guy who was accused of child pornography and then was later in a separate case accused of killing someone. And that just tells you everything that you need to know about um, the state of the judicial wars. And so every president since President Clinton, maybe before, has looked to, to expand the model and can't we get a politician? Where's Bruce Babbitt when we need him? And the answer is it's just been too difficult um, to take that risk. And so we have this pretty constrained area in which we work. Um, actually, one of the things interesting about the Garland nomination is that at least we have more of a record to go on than, than the normal stealth nominee. That oh. in Chicago. Chicago. He's from the heartland. <laughs> the, the, the fact that he's from the middle of the country is supposed to be bracing for us. But yes, and, and the fact that I think he becomes the fourth Jew on the court uh, that will be, you know, four mm. Jews uh, and five Catholics. But I mean, this is, this is not reflective of any America that we know. Um, all right. That is uh, Dahlia Litwick. Dahlia will have lots more about the Garland nomination in coming weeks on her excellent Supreme Court podcast, Amicus. Subscribe to it so you don't miss an episode. Just search for Amicus, A-M-I-C-U-S, in your favorite podcast app. Dahlia, thanks for joining us. Thank you all for having me. And now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is Harry's. Spring is arriving. The first hints are here. If you're thinking of getting rid of your winter beard, you need to get Harry's. As you know, I am a devoted Harry's user. I'm not going to get rid of my winter beard, but I'm definitely pruning it back, and I've been using my Harry's razor to, to clean up that neck, to clean up my cheeks a bit, and you should do it too. 
Why should you be paying $32 for an eight-pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com? For just $15, you can get the Harry's Starter Set, which includes a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. And Harry's gives you factory direct prices. They cut out the middleman and ship their products right to your door. Right now, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the promo code GABFEST. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code GABFEST at checkout. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are, have been expelled from a Trump rally, Ruth, and you're sitting there contemplating how to spend the rest of your day, what are you going to be chattering about to the Marcuses, to the little Marcuses? So I think that the little Marcuses are, are little Leibowitzes, and they're actually kind of big and away from home. But um, I think that we need a feel-good story this week. So my feel-good story for this week is in my own newspaper, The Washington Post by Tara Barampur, about four women who were girl, girls growing up together and are now 99 years old. Um, and it's a story about how they've seen the transformation of Washington. They grew up in a neighborhood in southwest Washington that was um, destroyed in the urban renewal in the 1970s. But um, they've remained friends, three of them. They're 99. Three of the four are living on their own. There's a magnificent video of one of them on her exercise bike pedaling away at 99 <laughs> years old. And then she reaches down with straight arms and touches the floor, and she says, I'm old, but I'm not cold. And mm-hmm. I think that is that is like my new motto of like what I want to be saying when I'm uh, 98, if not 99. Did they were they were they at what age did they meet each other? Were they they were girl, school, they were like school elementary friends? school girlfriends together in this neighborhood, and now they are their their children were friends. Their mothers together, their grandmothers together, their great grandmothers together, and now they're great greats together. And they talk about um, a world where. They weren't able to um, try on clothes in department stores in Washington, so they had to buy, because they were African-American, so they had to buy clothes without knowing whether they would fit, and if they didn't fit, kind of sell them on the street, um, because that was the way things worked. And they talk about, in this story, about the ability to grow up and see the first African-American elected president and wish they could tell their mothers about it. And so... It was, uh, it was actually, I was particularly drawn to this story because I'm in a book group now that has been around for going on 30 years, and we're going to get um, old but not cold together. And one of the women in my book group, Arlene Holt Baker, is in church with these women and um, did their a video of their stories, which she's uh, producing in a bigger way. So I, it just was a great feel-good story about longevity and friendship. That is great. That See, that's better than any chatter Emily would have brought, for sure. <laughs> Could you please stop uh, trying to, like, show yeah, yeah, no division I, between me and Emily? I know. It's I know. true. It's you're, just, you're not a unifier. I'm just trying to <laughs> score points against Emily in her absence. You're a disruptor. Uh, I'm, I'm the protest. You're not the being, pres- you're not being I'm presidential. I'm not being presidential. John, what's your chatter? Uh, I just want to recommend the, um, the uh, King and His Castle by Jason Horowitz, which is the description of Donald Trump's longtime butler at Mar-a-Lago. And it's, I don't want Another feel-good story. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's, um, but it's just a great piece of interviewing and writing and picture of Donald Trump at home. What's uh, a... What's a nice detail? Mar-a-Lago, which was the home of Marjorie Merriweather Post, was who was the wealthiest woman in the United States, and who had her own peculiar set of eccentricities, including that her office was her bathroom. 
the um, I mean, it was an or vice was versa. a vast room, <laughs> yes, that included the, all that you'd need for both. Anyway, she had purchased stone from uh, Genoa, Italy, and 16th century tapestries that she protected by drawing the drapes uh, in, in the brightest of hours. And there's a piece in, uh, in, the pe- in the piece that says that those tapestries faded after Trump bought the place and blasted the living room with sunlight. So here you have a candidate who is in part succeeding because he's telling people that he's going to bring America back to the older times, that he's going to return America to the place that people were promised when they were growing up. And yet um, there is a kind of blasting the living room with sunlight uh, quality to his campaign and his life. So that little detail there was um, was one that I liked. Anyway. I thought my favorite detail from that story actually also has to do with the, not, not the bathroom, but the children's room, where Donald Trump uh, likes to tell this story about how the tiles that tell um, nursery tale stories in the children's room were drawn by Walt Disney. This turns out to actually have no relationship to reality. And he knows this. And he says to the butler, I know you hate when I say this because the butler turned into the house historian. I know when you you say you hate when I tell this story because it's not true, but who cares? It's a great story. Well, there's that's and that's Reagan-esque in with Ronald Reagan. There were constantly stories he told that were just totally not true, but he told them anyway because, you know, they were good stories, and they made his but point. But he and might have believed his to be true more than Donald Trump does. <laughs> well, that's that's a good point. My chatter is, uh, I, I think I've actually done this chatter before on the GabFest because we've been doing the show forever. And uh, every several years, I reread a book called Sacred Hunger by Barry Unsworth. And I'm, I just ran across it again at my parents' house this weekend, and I picked it up. And so I'm reading it again, and I just am reminded this is the great novel to me of the last you know 30 or 40 years it's a it's a novel about the atlantic slave trade told uh mostly about it's mostly aboard a british slaving vessel that leaves liverpool in the 1750s and then i think 1750s and what happens on this boat and then a bit about the people who own it and it's a beautiful dismal book and if you're looking for a great historical novel i cannot recommend sacred hunger highly enough by barry unsworth won the booker prize our interns, Al Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. GapFest is, of course, part of the Panoply Network, and you should check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GapFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GapFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. What's your Twitter feed, Ruth? Uh, Ruth Marcus. At, at Ruth, Ruth Marcus. Marcus. At Ruth Marcus. Please Take subscribe. My, my kids say I have a really embarrassingly paltry number of Twitter subscribers, so stop embarrassing me in front of my children. At Ruth Marcus. Subscribe today and subscribe to the GabFest in iTunes for Ruth Marcus sitting in so ably for Emily Bazelon. <laughs> Not better than Emily, just different. And uh, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. And don't forget our Atlanta live show. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi. 
This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.